Worried about election season? Considering how to fight your political enemies? You could learn from Midwesterners in the 1980s and just how to organize them. These organizers are going to the homes of these farmers. They're going to community meetings and they're saying, no, 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 like it's not an international conspiracy. Here are the concrete steps you can do to save your family farm. This week on Interstates, how progressive Democrats once out-organized the opposition. That's coming up after this. It's campaign season. Time to ratchet up your fear that that one presidential candidate is going to bring ruin, possibly even ruination, on your country. From here on out, the rhetoric about fighting the other side is only going to heat up. It'll play out on TV and social media, of course. You might also feel it on the home front. If you've got an uncle, say, who believes down to his soul in the rightness of your political enemy. So what do we do about that? It's too late to get into a shouting match at the Thanksgiving table. And when was the last time that won someone over? You can probably find whole forests worth of, uh, web pages explaining how to talk so your progressive uncle will listen. And, I mean, please, go out and be curious about where your politically oppositional family members are coming from. Just realize you're probably not about to sway the election through those conversations. But look, all is not lost. On this week's episode, we're going to look back at an approach that actually changed Midwestern politics, if only temporarily. It's not about fighting your enemy. It's not exactly about being nice and gentle with them either. It's about surveying the landscape, the needs of the people around you, and getting them together. The churches, the unions, the farmers, the citizens' organizations, getting them all on the same page. Maybe they don't agree on everything, but they agree on enough. And getting the right candidate on the ballot or just forcing the hand of the person in office. It's called... Ooh, drumroll. I like that. Organizing. And my guest today has some stories about how it happened, not long before you were born. If you're under 30, at least. Some of us actually remember this stuff. So my guest and I started the interview the standard way. Would you introduce yourself, I said. And he said... You bet. My name is Corey Halla. He's an assistant professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. He studies Midwestern history, specifically political organizing, activism, politics in the 1980s. He's also a lifelong Minnesotan, so he thinks about the Midwest a lot. And for him, the Midwest isn't so much a specific region defined by state borders that we're all probably going to want to argue about. Instead, it's about people who feel like they're in this shared center of the country, where the power isn't. You have lots of folks pitching together in ways that are not uncommon to communities across the country. But to have evolved kind of a shared economic identity together over over the couple hundred years of the Middle West first and then you know, well, the West first and then the Middle West and then the Midwest existing, you know, developing that kind of common shared kind of um, way of looking at yourself, your politics and the rest of the country. I figured someone who spends his life studying politics and organizing must have had a political family. Right? Uh, no, it was not talked about and uh, still to this day, don't know my, well, I don't know my mom's political leanings. It was just not discussed. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I can guess, right. And, you know, my dad was a a public high school teacher, was active in the union. So that one's a little easier to suss out. Um, But it was not something terribly talked about within our household. I was 
politically aware, I think, growing up. And one of those moments for me was in 1998, I was, well, I was eight years old and Minnesota that year uh, elected a professional wrestler, Jesse Ventura, to be our governor. And that kind of set off for me this lifetime of just being fascinated by some of the political dynamics, the oddities of the state. So that's Corey. I was excited to talk to him, partly because early on in our emailing back and forth, he brought up this distinction between fighting, in this case it was fighting fascism, the distinction between fighting fascism and out-organizing it. Here's our conversation. I started by asking him to explain that distinction. So first, it's not that we shouldn't take the fascist threats in society today seriously, right? That, you know, there are these movements of white supremacy, these movements of Christian nationalism are things that are, are to be regarded with the utmost seriousness. One of the things that I take historically, though, as a means of approaching that kind of dynamic is how, particularly in the 1980s, on what we'll get into as the populist left or the progressive populist left, whatever you'd prefer, they were really concerned more with out-organizing it. So one of the dynamics would be in the 1980s, we talk about the farm crisis. You might, listeners may be familiar with farm aid, perhaps, uh, at the University of Illinois in 1985. Um, and part of where the farm aid money went was to funding some of these groups that were combating the, the fascist right, that were going out and talking to farmers who were on the verge of going bankrupt or being foreclosed upon, losing their home, and were reading or having things circulated through by these kind of dangerous, racist, anti-Semitic demagogues who are writing these things, talking about the Rothschilds and about Jewish bankers and what have you. And these organizers on the left, particularly in Iowa, are going to the homes of these farmers. They're going to uh, community meetings and they're saying, no, 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 like it's, it's not an international conspiracy. In fact, here are the concrete steps you can do to save your family farm. And it's not by listening to these racist demagogues who are going to have you declaring you're a sovereign citizen or something like that. Instead, it's by taking these concrete steps that the state provides for mediation. Go through these steps as a means of trying to save your farm. It's legal. It's not going to get you into shootouts with the authorities. And and added a bonus of it was it's also not going to lead you to espouse or to buy into this kind of anti-Semitic propaganda and this anti-Semitic demagoguery. Two things come out of that for me. One is that it was maybe more effective. And then the other, I think, interesting distinction there is that it's actually asking people to engage with and trust in the democratic processes and in their local governments and legislatures, which I think is almost the exact opposite of what the right often talks about is about mistrusting government. No, that's absolutely right. And these are advocates, farm advocates, in some cases they're called, um, and just a whole host of groups in, in South Dakota, North Dakota, Minnesota, Iowa, Indiana, Illinois, what have you, where these groups are saying exactly that. They're saying, here is the pamphlet from the Department of Agriculture that you can use. And here are the actual steps you can follow. Here is the Iowa Farm Foreclosure Mediation Program. Follow these steps, fill out these forms, go to this meeting or meet with this, this lender or this mediator to talk about it. Not saying, hey, show up at court with a gun or show up at the sheriff's office or, the, or worse, even the bank with a gun and do something drastic. But instead, here is an, a legal kind of approach that gives you, the individual, control over this situation again, right? Rather than feeling like control's been taken away and rested 
been sent to the USDA offices in Washington, that it's been sent to whatever shadowy bank or, you, or cabal you'd like to think about. No, in fact, you, the individual, have the power to make change here. And it was really something that succeeded in turning around and a lot of the fortunes of the left in the Midwest and building temporarily, building a real political coalition that, that looked like it had some legs. And that coalition was uh, one that you describe as progressive populists. It's both what I call them and what they called themselves. One of the things that I found doing research for, for my book project was a reading list, a bibliography that Iowa Senator Tom Harkin used himself. He read these books by noted historians, things that I read in grad school. He was reading them and giving them to other congressmen and saying, read these books and you'll understand what economic populism is, what economic democracy is. It's almost and, impossible to imagine that happening in Congress at this point. Like reading, like reading history books and saying, we're going to get our strategy from actual history and historians. And it was exactly that. I mean, they were using history to make history. That was exactly what their goal was, to say, hey, here are the examples that we have from populism, and here's how we can update them and apply them to the problems of the, uh, of the 1980s. They did that in part by pairing it with another historic movement that sprung out of the upper Midwest in particular, and states that loosely we'd talk about as being uh, North Dakota, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. But knowing that one of the earlier progressive insurgencies in the country was in Wisconsin uh, with a politician named Robert LaFollette or Fighting Bob LaFollette, who talked about raising taxes and raising regulations on railroads, on passing income taxes, on having secret ballots, on workmen's compensation laws, really trying to cure democracy with more democracy, giving people, individuals, control over their own systems and their own conditions. Uh, it was something that took hold more so than anywhere else in the country in North Dakota. The game that I like to play with my students all the time is when this lesson comes up, asking them to identify the most socialist state in America. Uh, it's a little ahistorical, right? But, you know, they go through all the, you know, California, Illinois, New York, whatever. And finally, it's just, I'm just going to tell you, North Dakota. And it's because those, um, a group called the Nonpartisan League, not a political party ever by itself, but a, a kind of third party-ish movement took over state government and created a state-owned bank. They directly took over that resource and they made it work for the people. And the state bank in North Dakota still exists today. So that was the kind of movement that this left uh, was trying to revive in the 1980s. And they were doing it explicitly by reading those stories. They were going by and watching a documentary about the nonpartisan league that came out in 1978 watched it and said, hey, we should do that to save all these family farms, right? We should do that to um, to make sure that workers are getting a fair deal, that when plants close, they have to give adequate notice and workers have to, um, unions have to receive their just compensation. Taking all those lessons and applying them in grassroots strategies, in national legislation, um, it's, it's a really fun story to follow and a really interesting story of people power in American politics. Let's get into that story. You talk about it through three layers in your book. There's the, the actual grassroots organizations, and there's the state-level politicians and kind of how they're both being supported by the grassroots activists, but also then maybe how they're being propelled forward. And then, of course, you address how it works out on the national level. Can you tell me a story of one of those organizations? <laughs> That was a great, great summary of the book. If you want to write my introduction, I'd be grateful for that. 
These are grassroots movements where oftentimes they were single issue or they were just based on some kind of consumer or some kind of average person problem. One of these groups is called Minnesota Citizens Organized Acting Together, or it's called Minnesota Coact. And Minnesota Coact originally had started on the east end of Duluth in the 1970s, and it was opposed to kind of slum clearance and freeway building, uh, and it morphed over time. First, it was uh, fighting utility rates and trying to help senior citizens keep their heat and keep their lights on. Uh, and by the early 1980s, it evolved into this kind of catch-all grassroots movement that glommed on to farm crisis kinds of organizing and started fighting for saving the family farm. So, so uh, would just go to and back up a little, it was already from the beginning, it was basically like a community organizing group. Like the goal was to yeah. bring regular people into politics, basically, to give them a, a way to interface with the people in power and gain power themselves. Absolutely, to put all those voices together in right. such a way that would actually make some sort of a difference. And that it was successful first in Duluth and then built into a bigger movement that by the early 1980s is hosting mass action kinds of things. In 1984, they go to a bank in uh, Painesville, Minnesota, central Minnesota, just a small you know, few thousand people, a farm community, and they stage a sit-in at a bank. And just uh, because the bank was going to foreclose on a couple of farmers in the area. They stage the sit-in and bank eventually renegotiates and they gain prominence. Farmers around the area begin to see, hey, there's strength in numbers. The state is having to pay attention to us. Uh, and by 1985, they're part of this movement that drives 15,000 people and tractors and everything else to the state capital in Minnesota. Okay. I want to just stick with that for another second because I think it's a really important um, distinction that a lot of us now, especially when we're so distracted in social media by feeling like that is kind of where politics are happening because so many people are talking there, that this group, Minnesota Coact, part of the way it worked was to, it was bringing people together so that their voices were aligned on a particular issue. Like bringing bodies together, too, in the case of the bank sit-in. At the time, it was just a few thousand people. Presumably, it built from like, you know, 10 people and then 25 and 50 and 100 working on maybe other issues. I just kind of want to, I feel like that's what's so interesting and important to me about what you're showing us is that it involves regular people getting together. And regular people from the rural Midwest. I mean, this is... From And from the urban Midwest as well, right? One of the things that's so cool about this movement is that we have been focusing on it as a farm crisis movement, but we've been talking about senior citizens and their utility rates. We've been talking about slum clearance and urban residents in, in first Duluth, later in Minneapolis as well. Talking about these things, not as kind of identity issues, but talking about them as class. And there are these small chapters of COACT in these just corners of Minnesota. They're up in Brainerd, Minnesota, 12, 13,000 people. They're down in southeastern Minnesota near Winona in these just kind of pockets around the state where they're giving average people from the area a chance to talk about these issues, but saying, hey, at the state level as well, here's what we're doing for you. That you, it's not just you're not alone in this, despite how isolating something like family farming can be that you have your community kinds of organizations that you might belong to, whether it's a church, whether it's the Elks Lodge or whatever it might be, right? You have this organization, this institution, but here's one that's having political success, that's fighting and winning political battles on your behalf. What are those issues? Tell us what they are, and we will amplify them. We are trained. We know how to do this, and we want to help you personally 
because we have that expertise that can go the extra mile. You said it was reminding people that they're not alone in this. And that's not it's not just an intellectual understanding of not being alone, but it actually brings people into a community with other people as well. And they're realizing they're sharing the same problem and that then also they can do something about it. Well, I mean, what could be more Midwestern, right, than the classic church supper or something like that? You know, when everybody everybody brings a hot dish. There's again, there's the Minnesotan in me coming out. Everybody brings their hot dish to the to the event, or they would provide whatever it was that they had. And one of the cool places where that idea of pitching in goes even farther is Coact does this in Minnesota, and a similar group in Iowa takes an action where farmers, okay, who are pr- producing and really overproducing part of why we're in the farm crisis in the 80s is overproduction. Um, They're producing whether it's grain, whether it's milk, whether it's pork, producing too much and aren't getting a fair price for it. And one of the ways they call attention to that is in Minnesota, this starts in southern Minnesota, farm country. They drive to a Sabathani community center, a black, predominantly black community center in Minneapolis. And they have kind of a consciousness raising event there. And then together they drive up to the Iron Range of Minnesota a very blue-collar mining kind of region of Minnesota, lots of iron ore steelwork. And they bring food to miners and steelworkers who are out of work. And what could be in Minnesota, right, when you talk about the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, right? I think we've checked all our boxes there. They're they're doing it not in saying like, okay, you know, check that box, check that, you know, farmers are here, great, labor is here, great. They're doing it and saying, we're all sharing this kind of struggle, this hardship in 1980s in Ronald Reagan's America. Let's talk about our problems together. Here's what we can offer you to help. You unions offer the men, the, the muscle, the, the organizing, some of the political savvy. Let's all go and fix this problem together. Again, trying to bridge some of these, what we talk about today is the rural urban divides, right? quite literally bridging some of those gaps by with these caravans and with this uh, these speaker series, this consciousness raising as a means of building that kind of collective shared identity, rolling up their sleeves and actually pitching in to fix things. It's time for a break. When we come back, we'll hear about a rumpled professor who became a very popular politician, like a senator through the life-changing magic of showing up. Stick around. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers, and we're listening to a conversation I had with historian Corey Halla about how progressive populists in the Midwest out-organized the competition and put a lot of Democrats into office. How did they figure out their strategy? By reading history books, it could happen again, is all I'm saying. Okay, so one of the people who made it to the U.S. Senate was a political science professor who'd never held public office before, Paul Wellstone. Here's Corey. If you were to picture, like, the quintessential rumpled professor, he was that, but he was also a collegiate wrestler at North Carolina. Like, yeah, so he, there was one day I was doing research at Carleton and some of his papers and things, and I stumbled across just some old photos of him. And it's him just doing like a running club at Carleton. And it's him with his, and and like three other guys with their shirts off going for a run. It's like, oh, I felt really bad about myself as a college professor. Like, oh my God, this dude was fit. He was in shape. But, you know, taught in jeans and, you know, a flannel shirt buttoned down, you know, a couple buttons basically was the vibe that he, that he had. And he, 
wasn't somebody who was the most imposing or the most, you wouldn't look at him on a campaign trail and say, that's the guy. Um, he's a short, shorter man. He's Jewish, which was something not necessarily completely unheard of in Minnesota politics, but was something certainly outside the mainstream of a very kind of Protestant-leaning Scandinavian or German kind of state. You have this rumpled, curly-haired Jewish professor who's going into farmers' meetings, going into union halls, and rolling up his sleeves and talking with people, and they believed him, and they counted him as one of them because he talked so earnestly and understood and empathized with those individual people. And how did he then move from being a rumpled poli-sci professor to ultimately being a, a, a senator? It was by getting involved with those kinds of grassroots organizations. And there are about 10 different ones operating in Minnesota in the 80s that are, we talk about as being on this kind of progressive left. And Wellstone shows up at all their meetings. Like it's, I, I'll be in the papers of a group that meets in St. Paul and, oh, Wellstone's there in October of 1981. Then another one meeting in southern Minnesota, Farmers, in like January of 82. And, oh, Paul Wellstone came and talked to us today. Uh, and then we're up in Brainerd, like way in northern, north central Minnesota. And, oh, Paul Wellstone addressed the group in May of 82. And you're like, how the hell did this guy get around to all this stuff and teach his, his classes and whatever and be beloved by students? He did, and he, he cared and, and also saw the utility in organizing all those different groups and saying, here's how we take political power. Here's how we win all that. Uh, he'd actually waded in. He ran for state auditor in 1982, despite admitting himself he could not read charts, that he had a, a, a slight learning disability that, that made some of that kind of chart and math reading tough. But when he, when he runs for that office in 1982, he actually says that Minnesota should adopt a state bank just like North Dakota has. He grabbed that history and grabbed that tradition and applied it to state problems. And now, look, this wasn't actually the job of the state auditor. He was running and talking about a nuclear freeze, talking about the farm crisis. Nobody's looking around like, dude, your job is to audit people and balance the, like, make sure the budget's balanced. And he lost. But he also built this, you know, kind of name recognition that when he finally ran for Senate in 1990, he overcame low name recognition. He overcame low favorability ratings and built a, a coalition and a movement of people who believe truly that he could get it done. So I actually didn't know this. Senate was his first office. It was his first elected office. Yes. He'd also run for He'd also run for the state auditor, like I said, but that was it. Uh, he'd been involved in party politics for a while, but that was it for him. <laughs> okay, there's one more detail about his campaign side of things that I want to hear about before we get into some other things about him and the bigger work, which is the the bus. We got to hear about the bus. He and some of his, uh, his colleagues at Carleton, some of his uh, friends who supported him in 1989 as he was preparing and announcing that he was running for Senate, said, well, we're going to need a way to get around. We're going to need a symbol of this campaign, and we don't have any money to do it. And so they found a cheap bus in the area. They scouted out. They did their research, did their homework, found a bus, tore out some of the fixtures inside and retrofitted it and made it a bus that could travel the state, had a little platform on the back like the old Truman Whistle Stop tours. And they drove that bus around the state and drove it into the into the ground multiple times. It was not an uncommon thing to see that bus broken down on a highway. But they paint this bus up green and drive it around the state of Minnesota. 
And it becomes just a symbol of this underdog, scrappy campaign that people can identify with too, right? When you see a guy broken down on the side of the road, the Wellstone game was like, well, is this going to look like a metaphor for the campaign? We're broken down. Instead, no, Minnesotans could identify with, we've had car trouble too. It sucks to be stranded on the side of the road today when it's 14 degrees outside. It made him more of an everyman. It made him more likable. And it became a symbol that you saw in everything, including some of his campaign ads, which are available on YouTube. And I recommend your listeners to go look them up. One of them is called Fast Paced Paul. Hi, I'm Paul Wellstone, and I'm running for the United States Senate from Minnesota. Unlike my opponent, I don't have $6 million, so I'm going to have to talk fast. And he's running between scenes one after the next. This is my wife, Sheila, and our children. This is my house in Northville, where I've lived for 21 years. My son, David, farms, and I've worked with Minnesota farmers for years. We must stop the poisoning of the air and the land and the water. I'll lead the fight for national health care. I've been a teacher for 24 years. Labor indoors. Paul Wellstone won't slow down after he's elected. In the end, he boards his bus and the bus drives off. And it's just this brilliant kind of example of saying all the things that he wanted to say, saying all the different people he was going to fight for in this really short and really memorable kind of clip. Um, It's one that, again, fast-paced, Paul. I encourage everybody to go look it up. It's it's phenomenal. (laughs) So his success was because of also these outside groups, these grassroots organizations. Absolutely. And it was almost to the point that he didn't have to ask, you know, that, that when Wellstone was running for office, it was coact was behind him. He had a primary, those canvassers as much as they can, right? These are still, you know, have to remain separate from the candidate, but they, they support him. Groups in Iowa come out for Tom Harkin. The Wisconsin complement to, to coact is a group called the Wisconsin Action Coalition. They come out in support of a, another guy who was kind of one of their own in Indiana, Congressman up in uh, northern Indiana, Jim Johns, ran with the support of what's called the Citizens Action Coalition. Um, again, there's the same kind of name, and all these groups share these. They share these kind of conferences or these meetings they would go to every year and talk about some of these problems. Johns had served on on the CAC board in Indiana and was passionate about it. And then when he runs, you have these people who are naturally motivated to come out and do that kind of hard campaign work to go knock on doors, to go um, shake hands, to go kiss babies, whatever it is, because they earnestly believe in this cause. And they earnestly believe that this person, this candidate is going to help them in this, you know, help them fight for and win this cause. And they kept succeeding. I mean, this, the eighties are a time of just, widespread democratic wins in places that today are complete afterthoughts to the democratic and the left uh, kind of coalition in America. So maybe they were feeling hopeful about that. How did that go? Well, they certainly felt hopeful about it and they felt like they were doing the right things to get noticed nationally. The farm crisis, perhaps the most famous thing to come out of it is the ongoing farm aid concert that's organized in 1985 and you know it's Willie Nelson it's Neil Young it's John Mellencamp for all the Indian uh, Indians out there one organizer in southern Minnesota a woman named Bobby Polzin gets up on the stage at Farm Aid and reads a letter gives a speech at Farm Aid 1985 the first one and they thought and b- really believed they could transform farm policy in America They were proposing these kinds of farm policy plans that were written in part by some of these activists and were introduced in Congress by men like Tom Harkin from Iowa, 
who's talking with these farm coalitions and then who's introducing that legislation in the Senate and trying to win passage of these laws that would have would have fundamentally transformed family farming and transformed other kinds of small producer economic issues across the region. Would have. Would have. Uh, it's not a happy ending to the story, and it actually gets worse than just right. We were not going to increase price supports. In fact, in 1985, they slash uh, price supports in the 1985 Farm Bill. And this kicks off a cycle where by the 1990s, price supports disappear entirely from American agriculture. And what's funny is this is part of an era with Bill Clinton, right, where Democrats don't have to sign these laws. They don't have to play ball. But the coalitions that get worked out in the Senate in particular to pass freedom to farm involves Southern Democrats and and the Republican Party appealing to environmental Democrats. And particularly, those are found on the coasts. In particular, one of the big names that I discuss in a different book chapter is Pat Leahy, uh, the recently retired senator from Vermont. And Leahy is one of these Democrats who makes a deal basically to pass the 1996 Freedom to Farm bill that strips price supports out and really leaves farmers kind of twisting in the free market wins. Um, Those are processes that repeat for things particularly like NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, despite labor, steelworkers, auto manufacturers screaming in the upper Midwest, on the picket lines, screaming that we don't want this. This is going to ruin us and see more jobs fly out of the country. NAFTA passes anyway. And so it. these are things that, despite their best efforts and despite their best organizing, a lot of progressives, a lot of farmers who have been joining these movements feel sold out. They feel like they've been trying to change the system. They've been stumping for more progressive candidates trying to build this kind of multiracial, this economic democracy. And over and over again, they just bash their head up against this wall of whether it's conservatism in some cases, but a democratic party that isn't comfortable moving that far left or moving that far left on economic issues in particular. It's really where that, that movement kind of sees its, its spark, sees its kind of uh, engine run out of gas. Yeah. Okay, so a couple of, I guess, bigger picture questions then. Um, it does feel sad. <laughs> That's not a question. That's just a response. I just want to acknowledge it, that. No, it is. And it's so tough to, to see particularly some of, these, some of these activists and advocates who, have, who fought for whatever their cause was to see that their way of life is no longer viable. It's, it's tough to look at family farmers who had had the 160 or the 300 acres in you know, the beautiful rolling hills of southern Wisconsin or western Minnesota, and now they have to own 1,000 acres to, to be profitable as a farmer today. You know, In the 70s in Indiana, I think it was about 800 to 1,000 acres you needed to farm sustainably. Today, it's 2,000 to 3,000 acres. You have to get bigger, you're going to get out. And it's, it's a story of bigness. It's a story of a lot of those kind of corporate or those larger forces beyond people's control, leaving some of these places behind or leaving some of these people's dreams to die when just help doesn't come. And as those people quit, as those people just find that it's not viable or possible, you start to see that political coalition breaking 
you know, breaking down. And it was really kind of a harbinger of, of the 1994, the Newt Gingrich conservative revolution, right? You know, we don't want this big government. We don't want all these identities that we're having to deal with because of all this progressive organizing on LGBTQ rights, whether it's on women's rights, whatever. Uh, it's easier to say, hey, those are the people who are bogging us down, who are wasting ta- taxpayer resources, wasting money, getting people to fight against one another for a smaller and smaller piece of that pie is part of what drives a wedge in and ultimately scatters a lot of these movements. Now, I try to, in the conclusion to my book, not be quite so pessimistic and negative. That's not to say, hey, this one simple trick will win you elections or something. God knows I get paid a lot more if I had one simple trick. But it lives on in, in particular, some of the traditions and some of the imagery and rhetoric that exists in the region. You know, there are people still in these local these small kind of local places or these small towns that are celebrating that heritage and seeking to use it constructively to make people's lives demonstrably better. There is a, a legacy out there that can be used, like Paul Wellstone's was after he tragically died just uh, just days before he was going up for a third term in the Senate in October of 2002. Some of his old campaign workers founded what was called at the time the Wellstone Action Fund the Wellstone Action Foundation, that trained grassroots activists in how to win elections. So you have people who are trying to use those legacies constructively, and that's what I suggest ultimately should be a takeaway from this era of American history. People using history to make history, and it can be done again, but it requires an attention to how it was done in the first place. It's nice that you have that that moment where people were already using history to make history in the 80s, in the 70s and 80s, looking back to Bob LaFollette and this this earlier period. And that, I think, is one of the more kind of hopeful takeaways that that this has already been done and it can be done again, like you said. Absolutely. And I... <laughs> Better people than me will be the ones to do it. I just, it's been an honor to kind of recapture and tell some of these stories and fun to just hear all the, all the intersections or the reminiscences or, or whatever that folks, when I'm doing research, whether it's in Bismarck, North Dakota or Chisholm, Minnesota or Carbondale, Illinois, or wherever it might've been, you tell somebody what you're doing and they'll say, oh my God, yeah, my dad was a farmer in the eighties who, who had to quit, but he worked in town, but he never stopped voting Democrat or something. And oh, that's really interesting because these are places that we'd maybe think about or write off in our minds as being Trump country or as being, you know, this kind of just lost space or this loss to to whatever, you know, the, the left kind of cause is. But there's a memory of those kinds of things. And it, it takes creative problem solving that, again, is probably beyond my pay grade. But to use the historical examples here and to talk about how it was done once, I think offers some really creative ideas and solutions for future generations. It's time for another break. When we come back, Corey Halla talks about how learning this history, hearing these stories, has helped him understand some of the anger voters feel today. Stick around. Interstate's Alex Chambers. A lot of what historian Corey Halla did to learn about progressive organizing in the 80s and 90s was drive from archive to archive across the upper Midwest. But as he traveled around, he also talked with actual people who remembered this period. Some former politicians and lots of people who'd been involved on the ground. It really brought home for him how much movements like this touched people's lives. 
and he shared a few good stories with me. But before we got to that, I asked him how his research has helped him understand the moment we're in right now. It's helped me understand some of the anger, in all honesty. It's helped me understand some of the frustration that folks feel forgotten and that doesn't excuse turning toward anti-Semitism. It doesn't excuse turning toward racism, but it at least gives you a framework for, hey, in fact, here's what dialogue can do. Uh, And I know there, I was just contacted by a group recently who's knocking on every door in Western Wisconsin to talk about corporate hog farms that are potentially polluting waterways. And do people on Main Street, Ellsworth, Wisconsin care about that? Well, they should. And so this research has helped me find ways to understand, but also to put people in conversation with one another to help provide examples and to see and, and hear from parts of the world, parts of the country that you know, I don't know that I ever necessarily would have gone to. It's been informative to sit across from a minister turned organizer in South Dakota at a, I don't, it was like a church luncheon kind of a thing. He just called me up and said, Hey, I'll be in town. If you want to come talk, come talk. And I'm eating, you know, like ham sandwiches and jello in a, in a church dinner hall. And he's just telling me, Oh yeah, I drove my station wagon 40,000 miles that summer. Uh, and, you know, talked to 20,000 farmers or something. And, and, and you know that it didn't necessarily end well for those kinds of folks, but you also know that, Hey, they've been contacted before and they have a memory of that, or, Hey, it's, it's amazing what the power of kind of human contact and the power of face-to-face kind of conversations has done in American politics. And I mean, who's to say could do again. I'm interested to hear your uh, research. I was picturing it mostly being archival, but it sounds like you were also traveling around and talking with people. The conversations happened a little more organically. A lot of times I would hit stopping points in an archive, just, hey, I've looked through all the farm activist newsletters from 1982 to 1988 and would just start Googling people, to be honest. You know, just start Googling that minister and find, oh, he still runs a congregation outside Watertown, South Dakota, and called him up. And he answers his phone because he's not a millennial like me and says, oh, okay, well, why do you want to talk to me? Because I think it'd be interesting. Called somebody who, without getting too much into the weeds of the story, in 1985, South Dakota's entire legislature flew to Washington, D.C. to advocate for farm legislation, like for help, basically. But because it costs money to do that, a, a farmer called into a radio station in Watertown, South Dakota. His name was Ron Larson. He called into the Watertown radio station and told the, uh, the DJ, David Law, if everybody just gave a buck, I need to be careful to enunciate this, uh, if everybody gave a buck, we could send the whole legislature to Washington. And people start mailing dollar bills into this radio station. People start mailing them from like a convent in Kentucky. Uh, Tip O'Neill, who's still Speaker of the House, mails them a dollar. Like from all over the country, people are mailing dollar bills or a check written out for you know a few bucks, and they raise over ten thousand dollars to send the legislature to South Dakota. And I call the DJ up or email the DJ, and he's like, "Yeah, come down to Watertown. Uh, I'll have you sit in the in the studio and." not on the air, but we'll just sit in the studio and chat for a little bit. And he pulls out two old photo albums of the whole legislature going to Washington. And then he says, oh yeah, and I think the widow of that farmer is still living up in Aberdeen. And I get her on the phone and she says, yeah, if you want to come up tonight around six o'clock. So 
I get in my car and drive two hours farther up US 14 to Aberdeen. And she pulls out a whole storage tote of stuff and just starts flipping through like, oh, here's a, a campaign sign from when her husband ran for the state Senate. And here's buttons and here's letters that he's received from all these different people saying, thank you so much for doing this. I've been farming for this long. One of them is an 85 year old woman who writes and I'm quoting almost verbatim here, who writes, I'd like to see Reagan crawl a mile on his knees for a bite of steak. <laughs> this just old, angry woman who's had enough, who's fed up in the middle of the farm crisis. And it was so powerful and so cool to be sitting there in Renee's, in her kitchen, and she's showing me all the stuff from her husband being the catalyst to send an entire legislature to Washington. Those kinds of stories have been so much fun to do and just taking a chance because there are folks who want to talk about this era that the folks want to talk about the reminiscences to the point that I got set up a time and, and talked to one day, uh, North Dakota Senator Byron Dorgan. I emailed his I don't know, office or something on a whim. He's had long since retired. He's like, yep, we'll, we'll call you this date at this time. And I just paced around my kitchen taking notes when he, called me and just started telling me stories about the 19, uh, the 1980s. I was driving back from Iowa where I had terrible cell reception at the time. And a guy who had won, uh, who became Lieutenant governor of Iowa in 1982 at the time when they had split elections for governor and Lieutenant governor. So Terry Branstad, a Republican wins the governorship, but Bob Anderson wins the Lieutenant governorship. He calls me at five 30 on a Thursday afternoon as I'm driving back from an archive in Des Moines. And I just hit the first exit that I see, park on the off-ramp there, pull a notebook out of my, my back, uh, back seat, and just start taking notes there in the, on the off-ramp. Because I had cell service, which was rare. I didn't want to jinx it, and I needed to take a couple notes. And the guy talked to me for like 40 minutes. And just had to text my take the phone out and keep it on speaker, text my wife, like, sorry, I'm going to be late for dinner tonight. Like, it's... I'm doing an interview on the, on the side of Interstate 35 right now. So, And what did you get from those kinds of conversations or from that conversation? Uh, you, get, you get a sense of the consciousness that they had of, of their movements, of not only the inside kind of the backroom politicking. Senator Dorgan was great for that. Bob Anderson was as well. You know, this politician was, you know, he was kind of a jerk or he didn't ever want to deal with people. But you'd also hear from them talking about, well, I, I worked in, you know, or I, I saw the the hurt on people's faces, right? Or I went to these groups and farmers were angry there. And you had to navigate how to talk to these farmers and say, we're going to try to make things better, but also, you know, not to <laughs> to get yourself menaced or run out of town. Um, the the need for, for the kind of feel and touch of, of personal campaigning and politicking really stood out in those stories. And Half of these folks are, are guys and gals who don't have archival collections that are out there or open to the public yet. And so it's pushing them to like, hey, write this stuff down. People care. We want to hear about those things, whether you're elected as a senator from, from a state or whether you went to farm rallies in, in 1984-85, whether you went to strikes in Austin, Minnesota or environmental advocacy kinds of events in Indiana in the 1980s, a local archive, contact the local university 
and see, do you have an archive that is collecting or that's accepting donations? Odds are they, they would be thrilled to have them because it, those are stories that one, I can't keep running cars into the ground, chasing down all these stories. I've put more than enough miles on more than enough cars, but there are, there are people who can digitize and make those stories so accessible and so so public for the world that, that, you know, that these are needed. These are stories that we need to have and need to hear. Tell them, you know, find, find somebody who can listen or who can record that story and, and you know, take it down. Cause that was, it was a really inspiring kind of part of my research that pushed me through some, some tough times. Um, you know, Hey, these are stories worth telling and it's fun to go find those and, and empowering to see what can be done with them too. I mean, that's what I was about to, what I was thinking about was, that it's through these stories that we're able to see some of the ways that these things can happen. As we've been talking about kind of this whole time, that we really do need to have these stories of how, of people struggling for economic justice in order to remind us of the ways that it is possible. The fact that they had power in the first place, I think, is a really key takeaway. That they had power, that they that it doesn't just center as well on what happens in Congress, that not just Washington, like care about what happens in your state legislature, care about what happens in your local, local races. You know, we've seen it with school boards, especially lately, but that these local kinds of political conversations are so, 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 so vital. And having these both activist organizations, but strong political figures too, played, you know, had impacts down the ballot and had impacts in, in American politics. And, and, you know, could do it again. Who's, you know, I'm not definitely a story, not a political scientist. Um, so I can't look, I, I look forward very badly, but who's to say that it can't happen again. Okay. I've got one more story from Corey that I think really shows the legacies of these movements and leaders. I volunteer on a project at my high school that I went to in Invergrove Heights, Minnesota, and a, a young student who asked what I did one day, like sophomore in high school, and wasn't there to talk about my research at all. He goes, oh, so like, you know, Paul Wellstone. Like, oh, I mean, I know of him. Sure, you know, that's, uh, he goes, well, my grandpa changed his name to Wellstone. And I look at this guy like, buddy. He goes, no, no, my grandpa uh, had emigrated from Vietnam and there were issues with citizenship in, in 2000 and he called Wellstone's office and they figured out and, and got his, they helped him navigate the citizenship process and out of gratitude, he changed his name to Wellstone Wynn and and looked it up and like, oh my God, sure as hell, this kid at Sembley High School had a grandpa named Wellstone Wynn. It was like, well, that's probably a sign that I was doing the right thing. And that went into the, the conclusion of the book because that was just such a story of like, Oh man, you know that talk about legacy living on, right? History, you know, this historical memory. I, I couldn't think of a better example if I tried. Corey Halla. Corey is a historian of the Midwest, specifically political organizing in the 1980s. You can expect his book about this research in early 2025. That's it for the show today. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us, or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know 
at wfiu.org interstates. You can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. And if you think someone else should hear the show, go ahead and rate it wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, tell us what you think. Okay, it's almost time for your quick moment of slow radio. First, the credits. The Interstates team is me, Alex Chambers, with Jillian Blackburn and Avi Forrest. Our executive producer is Eric Bolstridge. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. Special thanks this week to Corey Halla. All right, time for the found sound. Heads up, this one's subtle, so listen closely. That was water on a misty morning dripping off a mossy rock. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks, as always, for listening. Riding back at the top of the